there needs to be fresh thinking, younger people, new ideas. And if you always stand there and that you are perceived as so strong, then people will not dare to do something different. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare podcast. I've been waiting for the chance to talk to my guest today for ages, actually. <laughs> But thanks to her extensive remit as one of the world's most successful product liability and product compliance lawyers and her role as global head of Hogan Lovell's industry group, she has probably one of the most complex schedules imaginable. And unfortunately, There wasn't much time to sit down in front of a microphone with me and talk about herself and the view of the life sciences industry. But more or less the second she stepped down from her role as global head, I took the chance, approached her, she agreed and even invited me to her home. So thank you for taking the time and welcome Ina Brock. Thank you, Julius. Lovely to have you here and I'm really excited to do this with you today and looking forward to an interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. We immediately kick it off and I tend to ask the question every time, why law? Why law? It's, uh, it's an interesting question. It was a bit of coincidence in my case. My father is a lawyer and therefore I didn't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to be a journalist actually and applied to a journalism school in Hamburg where uh, they said, yeah, but what do you want to do in journalism? And I obviously said, I want to be in all the high-profile magazines, Die Zeit, Frankfurt Allgemeine, that's the type of thing that I want to do. And he said, well, then you may want to study something serious first. And I was saying, what is something serious? And he said, politics, history, economics, or law. And the only thing I could understand roughly what it was about was the law and so I started to study law and when I started it I really enjoyed it and and it stuck with me so I became a lawyer. Interesting and so the whole process of becoming a lawyer in Germany takes some time obviously so when was the immediate decision to say okay I'm going to step away from the dream to become a journalist? I think it was pretty soon in the in the first semesters, I think oh, wow. I, we did a lot of philosophy of law mm -hmm. and ethics, and I had one professor who was a previous judge at the German Constitutional Court, and he was teaching constitutional law, and that was just so amazing uh, to listen to these people that I was fascinated. And I also realized that, you know, I had perhaps a little bit of a gift there in that law is not so much about learning cases. It's about a way to think. And that suited me well because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to learn so much. And plus, I think it's something that I enjoy doing. Um, cool. So that was pretty early on. And which completely blew my mind that you actually from here. So Lübeck, so the north of Germany. And the immediate question which came to my mind is why moving down to Munich? I, I know that you um, studied in Hamburg. So what made you to say, okay, let's go down to the south of Germany? Yeah, <laughs> I guess we we're beginning to see a thread here. So this was also not planned. <laughs> I During my studies, I spent time in Brussels, in London, in Freiburg. 
and also in Munich, but I always wanted to come back. And I was thinking not necessarily Lübeck, because that's a pretty small town, and yeah. I was thinking maybe that's not my place, but Hamburg was certainly the, the goal. And when I w started with Lovells, Hogan Lovells, at the time it was called Droste, I had started in Munich and then moved to Hamburg already. And so I was... Uh, in my my goal was to stay there. Yeah. So I worked for a famous partner, Dietrich Olgaard, in the trademark space, actually. For, and and I liked it. And uh, the problem only was that my husband came along and he wanted to stay in Munich. And so after eight months in Hamburg, I moved back to Munich and I have been staying there ever since. Um, Munich is nice. It's very different, but I enjoy living there as well. Yeah, Okay. So you just mentioned trademark, but why did you choose your role you have now as a litigator? And um, how did you find your way into life sciences? Yeah. Because obviously you stepped away from trademark there. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so actually, the it took me a while to find out what my best ex, uh, area of expertise should be. And I had the luxury, compared to many others who start working in law firms today, to really look into various different fields. So I started in the Munich office with Christoph Hiltl, um, a life sciences regulatory and transactional lawyer, mm -hmm. and did life sciences regulatory work. That was my first work as an associate. And as you can imagine, life sciences regulatory was far too complex <laughs> for me. And so I, I wasn't sure if that's my, my type of thing. Then one of our litigators went on a, a sabbatical or an exchange with another law firm and I stepped up and said, okay, I can handle and cover for you while you're gone and worked in the Munich litigation department, which was then really a one-man show mm -hmm. and had the benefit of not being really overseen by partners. Mm -hmm. So you could <laughs> do whatever you wanted. And I greatly enjoyed that. Yeah. I loved being in court. And I liked that. And when I moved to Hamburg, it was not so much about the trademark law, but that was a big trademark litigation that was ongoing. Oh, okay. So I liked that. And when I came back to Munich, I was thinking really, how do I combine that knowledge of the life sciences space, the litigation space? And that's when Baxter came along oh, okay. and wanted uh, help with the contaminated blood products issues and with uh, hepatitis C cases. And they have been a client, this was in 1996. Wow. And they have been a client ever since. And they have been one of those clients who have accompanied me through my career. And I still enjoy very much working with them. We had a brief conversation once, and I think it was in Baltimore, where you told me that you basically had a handful of cases that determined your career. Was Baxter one of those yes, cases? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, because I had one other in a different industry. Um, so the cases brought different aspects. So this trademark litigation brought the international litigation piece. Mm -hmm. We didn't only do the German cases, but we coordinated the entire litigation across the world. And, you know, we had cases in Cairo, we had cases in Hungary, where my purse was stolen when I went to court, <laughs> oh. and things like that. So yeah. that was the international aspect. Then came Baxter, which really combined the regulatory stuff that I had learned with the litigation aspect, and also working closely with American lawyers at that time, mm -hmm. where you could learn a hell of 
things because litigation in the US in this space of product liability was far more advanced at okay. the time. Yeah. Um, it wasn't really an area of expertise even in Germany at the time. So I learned a lot there. And then the next case that came along, this was really the massive German life sciences with international aspects case. That was the painkiller case you read on the front page of the Bild Zeitung. Mm -hmm. 7,000 deaths because of that drug. Mm -hmm. It's not true, of course, yeah. but that was the headline mm -hmm. and the drama was unfolding. Mm -hmm. And that was really a huge case that started in 2004 and lasted for at least 10 years and we were helping the clients with ex-US litigation coordination across various countries and basically in in that case which was really demanding uh, it was 24/7 for many many years and we always thought hopefully christmas comes soon and <laughs> so we can take it, it, at least a it, quick break <laughs> yeah and it was always never ending so yeah. um, but it was real fun But it brought all the skills together that I had from these previous cases that I mm. mentioned. The international litigation, the life sciences, and then, you know, working with Americans and big teams. Did this also trigger your interest in this crisis management? Yes. yes. Because this is the most, the biggest crisis you can yeah. imagine yeah. Yeah. as a product liar, I would yeah, say. It, it didn't really trigger my interest. I was thrown into yeah, it okay. and I realized that I was not well equipped. Okay. So at that time, clients were in matters like that reluctant to send their own people on the stage. So I had to be initially a spokesperson mm -hmm. in Germany and do courthouse steps interviews with all wow. these cameras. And, and with the question, how do you feel about representing someone who killed 7,000 people? And lawyers are not well trained for that, not at all. How is the, there's no, no place in the studies to yeah. include that. Yeah. yeah. And so thankfully, the client exposed me to really top-notch media training. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've done a lot in that space. And no longer often as a spokesperson, but because normally today the strategy is that the company speaks. So yeah. normally the head of communications does that. Yeah. But working with them and communication agencies to, you know, have a strategy of how best to explain these sometimes complex uh, scientific issues is a fascinating task. Mm. And making sure that you are able to communicate and not just frozen by the threat of legal action you ha always have to be able to communicate but to do that in a way that will not impact your your cases mm. and maybe we repeat ourselves now but looking back and i know it sounds always a little bit difficult which of your cases on the one hand we already mentioned <laughs> left the most impression on you personally or shaped you and what you do as an attorney It's really hard because they had different elements. Obviously, I, I recall one case where I had my first trip to the US. I had never been in the US before. Mm -hmm. I came with a big suitcase because <laughs> I thought that's what you do when yeah. you travel to the US. And I was picked up with this huge limo and drove into a harbor and there came a boat. It was just like fantasy land. So okay. I was thinking, great, big law is, is really the place to be. <laughs> no, but I think that the most defining case was this case 
with the massive uh, recall of one of these painkillers because not only did, was it so intense and we were working so closely with the clients all the time, but it was also a very large team that was really on fire. Mm. So um, from the PA to the messenger to the associates to everybody who was involved, translation teams yeah. and so forth, everybody was really working together and, and full of passion for this case. And, and that was really a fantastic case that you felt after having been through all of the fire drills and dramas that happened in the course of that case that nothing can surprise you anymore. During my time at Hogan Levels, you were the one who, together with the other partners who were involved in the IMC, shaped the future of a whole generation of industry lawyers. How does that make you feel? Well, proud, if you say that. It wasn't really planned I was very passionate about the industry approach because I felt in the things that I do, even if it's litigation, and you might say any litigation partner can litigate, mm -hmm. I feel uncomfortable if I'm handling a case where I have to learn all of that universe around the case. Mm -hmm. So what are these products? Who are the clients? Who are the competitors? What do they do? How do they think? And how do these organizations work? All of that in the life sciences space, I feel I'm at home. I can bring all of that together, translate it to judges and understand what the clients want. And plus, I find it a fascinating industry. Yeah. Um, the clients really do amazing things. And, and we come to that hopefully later, what, mm. what we're currently all seeing in that industry. And so uh, I felt that very passionate about it. I also felt and had learned it in my own career that it's so much easier to build a profile in a specific industry because people know each other the best Uh, marketing is word recommendation, yeah. word of mouth. Yeah. And that works much better in an industry as if contrary to targeting the world, right? Mm. That's, that's always a massive task. It always boggled my head. Every time I went out and went to client events or stuff like that and, and um, networking events, and I said, yeah, I work at Hogan Levels in the life sciences medical device um, industry group. And said, so you knew Ina Brock. <laughs> I was like, Yeah, kind of. We have met a couple of times. Yeah, I know. She's great. <laughs> and so, so every time somebody mentioned your name, even when it was a regular me regulatory session or something like that. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Impressive. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, it's, um, it, I think it's what I'm trying to tell my own kids. I have three daughters. Mm -hmm. Is you are good at what you enjoy, right? And it's not about it's all also about hard work and all of that but you know it's easier when you enjoy something and, and you, have you passion, are interested yeah. in it mm. and you are curious then people will also see that yeah and trust you with their issues because they know that you will make them your own instead of distancing yourself and look at it as a piece of work a job to be done yeah. so that's not what works in litigation And the same effect that why these people say maybe they, they are happy working with me is what you do with the courts because they see that you believe in what you represent there. Mm -hmm. 
And only if you do that, then, then you have a chance to convince them as well. Mm. In your role as head of the industry group and also as head of your own department, you have probably had to go through the most difficult time um, the last two years you can have as a manager. How did you experience the time and especially what were the biggest challenges on the one hand in terms of internal management, but of course also in terms of managing the clients and helping them through what was yeah. going on? So the internal piece was really the hardest and I come to the client next. So of course, Corona and uh, home office initially I thought was actually a nice break. <laughs> um, and I felt I had more time yeah. and I felt it was also easier to connect with the clients because you always had these team calls or yeah. Zoom did we do at the beginning until it started to drag everybody down. Mm. And you realize that your team, my immediate team, my broader team, the management team that helps me, all conversations started to become more difficult and really didn't work so well. And you had to spend an enormous amount of time to think through how, how to communicate and you know, change your whole approach in order to try to be as effective yeah. um, in that world. So, uh, and I personally, I get my energy from people And sitting in my room at my laptop was never what I uh, what I imagined myself doing. doing yeah. yeah, and so um, it was not only for me, but also for the jobs I had to do, so much more difficult because you never strike the right tone. And email is worse, but even a Zoom meeting it tends to be very transactional, mm. right? You you join, you talk about what you need to talk about, and then you switch off. All the tones how are you how are the kids or you see it the person is overworked or not overworked you yeah. don't see that on, yeah, the, yeah, on the zoom yeah. and so that was a challenge and then when we th were thinking we're getting out came the war in ukraine and and that was another disaster and i had worked with the team with other partners that that were dealing with the question what do we do with our own operations in moscow mm. And that was obviously something that affected our people immensely yeah. in various aspects. And that was also very, very challenging. So I think these two things were the most challenging tasks to try to find ways to communicate with the internal people during COVID and lockdowns and now coming back to the office mm. is also a challenge. And then the Moscow office mm. issues. And did you feel like the teams recovered and that we coming back to somewhat of a normal stage. I'm not talking, I'm not yeah. talking Ukraine and Moscow, but yeah. I feel like this is still yeah. an ongoing thing, yeah. but um, in regards of COVID. I think we're still struggling to find our balance and it's different uh, in different places. This mm -hmm. is also a very regional or even office type issue. Yeah. How your culture is, how you feel. Mm. I think we have gained a lot of flexibility also, and we don't want to uh, miss that anymore. Yeah. But we need to be, you know, we, we're coming back to the office. I enjoy that. I, I go as much as I can. Mm -hmm. um, I think most of the team enjoys it. The, most of the people in Munich enjoy it and come back. But you still have to be a bit thoughtful 
about how you do it because since everybody has the flexibility to stay at home certain days or whatever you need to really design your meeting spaces yeah and we do that very carefully and i think we're we're still all struggling to find the balance mm. but i personally think we're on a good path coming back together that's great news and now come into the external part yeah how was the experience with the clients yeah so one thing was I really thought it was easier because you could just check in to see how they are. Um, and I heard that before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, you, know, you wanted to be checked on yeah. because, you know, we didn't see each other anymore. And so it was so weird in this lockdown that you just had the urge to see how people are that you know. And so you had an opportunity to really uh, get to know them in some cases much better than in the business meetings because mm. everybody was sitting in their home. You saw that was there a cat or a yeah, dog yeah. or uh, a wife or a husband <laughs> or children and everything was a bit more fun. So I thought interacting with clients was easier and uh, the questions were new and I always enjoy that because mm. the issues that they were facing were all new. Yeah. And and they were struggling with lockdown and, you know, supply chain and all that stuff it, from a totally different angle. And the good thing is that then it's the time of experienced lawyers who know the industry. Yeah. Because you can then, because it's new, you have to find new solutions. And you have to bring to bear all of your experience to do that because they're not in the book. And that was, a, that was fun, actually. I liked that. And then I had the pleasure of really helping one of the COVID vaccine manufacturers mm -hmm. very early on from December. When was it? 2020? 2020, yeah. I think. Yeah. Two years ago, more yeah. likely. <laughs> and so being in that race car, yeah. <laughs> right? Mm. I mean, yeah, it is. Uh, was lifting me up totally out of the COVID world because I was thinking, now I have something. We can do something. Mm -hmm. There they are, my yeah. clients. Yeah. They can do something and they do. And then ha working with them and then getting the first shot was, I really, I will never forget that day. Yeah. And um, so that was amazing and it was an immense privilege to be able to uh, work with these people and to speak to many of their executives and hear live these stories mm -hmm. was exactly what you want being an industry lawyer and being at the forefront of what's happening so not to pat you back too hard but you and your team are kind of part of history now <laughs> yeah well you know it's the client at they, least in the back end yeah yeah no <laughs> uh, i mean we were we just had a tiny role yeah. right i mean it's it's um litigation is not the most constructive piece of it yeah. so we're trying to help protect them mm. but uh what what they did was just amazing yeah i agree i always had the feeling that you have a very close relationship with your clients and you already mentioned it i feel like you learned a lot over the last two years in addition to the relationship you already had is this your general approach or does this come automatically because you are in the field of litigation and you have to be next to your clients because you are part of percent potentially their most vulnerable times yeah no I, that obviously helps build a bond if you go through these fire drills but Thankfully, not all of my clients are in a constant fire drill and constant existential threats. For me, it's important internally and externally to enjoy working together 
And I think it's not something that I do really on purpose. I'm interested in how the people are and how they think. And it, with some people, you click immediately. With other people, it takes longer. Mm-hmm. But for me, I cannot understand questions if I don't know the person who asks the question. Mm. Okay. And their background and their position in the company and what they're facing. And so I always like to spend time that is not just focused on the issue at hand, but to try to learn a bit more of these other aspects. And so, and I'm very curious. I learn also from taxi drivers, right? (laughs) (laughs) I always, when I drive a taxi, I will talk to the driver all the way. And you learn lots of things, uh, in particular uh, predictions of outcome of elections Mm -hmm. um, are Mm -hmm. much better since I talk to the taxi drivers. But (laughs) it's just every human being, but in particular also the clients, I'm interested what they do and how they feel and in their thoughts. Then I understand better how we can help. And if you don't have that curiosity and think about yourself and what you can offer and your products and all of that, you risk missing the point (laughs) because Mm. you don't understand what the client wants from you, what they expect and how you can help. And so I think this staying close to them and investing the time in understanding some of the issues which do not have immediate relevance for any case or pitch or whatever pays off um, in the long term. Looking back, a lot has happened in your field diversity and work-life balance are huge topics, especially over the last two years. Not diversity, but the whole work-life balance part. Everyone in our field is concerned about this kind of issues or opportunities, I would say, including you as a huge advocate of it for diversity, diversity especially. Why is this now coming up more and more and becoming more present also with the clients? Is the question now on the work-life balance piece or on the diversity? No, I would say let's cover diversity. Okay, diversity, I I wouldn't say it's now. I think it has been for many years now. And Mm. it's important for the clients as well because of the data and the science that shows if you have diverse teams, you get better solutions. Mm. It's as simple as that. And I think clients realize that. And big issues have emerged in some companies where there wasn't any diversity. yeah, And in particular in my field where you have a crisis, diverse perspectives help you. yeah, And it's obvious, it's palpable. And that's why clients, I think, care about it more. Law firms have been and still are, and in this country in particular, been very white male, mm-hmm. right? And they still are in Germany. And I'm not a very aggressive feminist person but i increasingly wonder why i'm still so often in settings where i'm the only woman in the room Uh, only yesterday big meeting men all men Mm -hmm. accompanied me Mm -hmm. so i think it matters because you do things differently in different ways and for the clients it's important that their law firms mirror how they are 
and and we have just a long way to go. Mm. And I think we're very good in Germany already compared to some of our competitors. Yeah. But it's still an issue in this society here, uh, in particular gender diversity, but we haven't even started on, on the rest. And I think it's important also under the aspect of the war on talent. You cannot afford to just not have talented people from whatever backgrounds yeah. they have. And they need to feel comfortable and they need to feel at home and they need to feel they can be genuinely themselves yeah. where they work. Mm. And I think that's that's something that is important because I'm all about getting the best out of everyone. So mm. I'm also a big believer in learning and development of people. I've seen that happening, that if you invest time, that people can do the most amazing things that they were not hired for, that nobody thought they could do, but yeah. they can. Yeah. And, and that's why diversity also matters, because some people and groups cannot bring their full potential to the table because they cannot be themselves mm. at work. From my perspective here, I feel when I walk through the floors in our offices, I feel like there is a change, especially now more and more female lawyers coming up. I, f I think the percentage shifted really yeah. hard yeah. and I feel like there are more female lawyers coming out of the university with way better grades than the males. <laughs> <laughs> and I think and there is a significant shift. But I, yeah. I agree with you, that, but there is a gap. And I think yeah. we have to give it a bit more time till yeah. the the executive rooms will change. Yeah. Well, the women always had the better grades. I mean, yeah. even in school. Yeah. Um, and we had excellent associates, but we need to be honest with ourselves. Um, we lost them mm. along the way. Yeah. And so I have been the poster child for so many years. Why is that? There need to be several other poster children. And I think there's a lot of work and we have to be intentional to, to make it work, to bring up even more female partners in mm. this country and, um, and to better understand what it takes to make it work for them because just part-time is not a solution. The, the solution is flexibility. We've seen it in COVID. All the women with families say that that actually worked much better for yeah. them. Mm. It will do something to their mental health over time yeah. if they have to stay behind their laptop just because they have a family. But as a society, you need to, to think about the men also. Mm. How can we enable them to, to take their part and have the other side yeah. and have the back? Yeah. And I think in Germany, it's an, it's an issue also for the society, not only for the law firms, but in the law firm, we need to constantly think through what else we can do to make this work. I actually thought about that yesterday because I was the only male person <laughs> next to the hockey field of my son. <laughs> There were all the moms and I was the only male yeah. person. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that ridiculous? It's, it's weird. It's really Germany. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel now they are looking, what is he doing here? Yeah, and I, of course, <laughs> at the time when you still dressed up for work in your suits, yeah. I was always the raven mother mm. at that moment. Mm. So because I only came to drop her, I couldn't yeah. watch the mm. game. Yeah. I went back to work. Yeah. And so what did I have? I had the raven mother label. And so that is really the, the problem. Mm. That's the problem. Looking forward, and I really keen to pick your brain on your ex industry expertise what is 
on the horizon? What is, do you feel like diversity in clinical trials, for example, is really a hot topic right now, repurposing real estate and from a litigation standpoint? One thing, I mean, it will be bigger and bigger, supply chain, supply chain, supply yeah. chain. Mm. I see that every day. Yeah. Uh, almost just two minutes ago, another company came and said they need help. To think this through, then then I, I think we will see immense cost pressures again mm. uh, from the social security side. Mm. We've seen it in the US already, and we will see it here as well. Yeah. But the two things don't work together, right? You want safer supply chains. Yeah. And you want to make sure that you have enough supply to treat your patients. At the same time, you want to save costs. The supply chains, from my perspective, are as they are because of the cost pressure. And in sourcing pharmaceutical manufacturing, which some of the politics say, yeah. comes at a cost, at yeah. a large cost. And so uh, I wonder how we can resolve that tension. In the medical field, I'm just so excited that they, we are in an area of cure. So many things are happening. It will be very, very fascinating to see what they can do with the mRNA technology. Yeah. What they can do in cancer treatment. It's so amazing. If you read a little bit of the, of the science... And you see it in the faces of the people working in the research departments of our clients that they are really onto something. And I think that is a trend that we will see and the impact of that cannot, own, cannot even yet be fully understood, mm. what that will do to medicine. Do you feel like we are coming back to a little bit more of nationalism in terms of supply chain so that, that sub companies are coming back to their roots Yeah, I, I doubt that, actually. I have heard that in, in politics yeah. a lot, that that would be a goal. Mm -hmm. And if it, it's fine if, um, if we maybe try to fund people that we have in the same way. And yeah. COVID has shown us how we failed as a country in Germany in this respect, I think. Yeah. But that's my personal <laughs> view. No, um, not and, really. <laughs> and see what other countries have done to yeah. really fund top research and, and support people bringing products to the market. And uh, I think we needed to do that. But I don't think, as hard as it may sound, that you can't, can turn back globalization. This is a really complex question because I've been listening to a ebook and 1984 again. And oh, okay. at the time they had the concept of three continents. Yeah. Two were always at war and the other one was aligned to one of them. And they were all separate and autark. So they didn't trade yeah. and so forth. And that was the concept of that world. And if you think about what we're seeing currently, you can see how somebody would think that these spheres of influence would, would turn into something like yeah. that. But I don't think it will work. No. And so that's why I think the supply chains will be global. Because also now you've transferred all the knowledge and the expertise into into different countries and they have added and built on to that. Yeah. So that I don't think complex biotech manufacturing really isn't done. You cannot teach that in a yeah. year. So uh, I think the supply chains will have to remain global. What the manufacturers 
have done and still need to do more, I think, is is diversifying their supply chains, yeah. trying to be multi-sourced yeah. as much as they can. To secure the supply yeah. chain overall. Yeah. yeah, I agree. As we cover that, for years now, you've had an insane amount of work, ridiculous travel schedule. <laughs> Did you lose your Lufthansa status already? No. <laughs> <laughs> How did you manage to juggle it at all? Yeah, so it was a lot at times. It was really a lot. I shouldn't say that it wasn't. I'm, nobody will hear that, but I have a certain laziness. Okay. I don't like to do things that I don't enjoy, like I said. Mm -hmm. So I early on tried to delegate mm -hmm. first and and. To delegate, you ha also have to help train and yeah. develop the person you delegate. Yeah. And then also have them grow out of that and let them delegate themselves to the yeah. next person. So yeah. that's my success recipe of building teams, right? Mm -hmm. So I delegate, train, and try to yeah. elevate and then have the next people move up. And mm -hmm. so that we all say you we do everything only for one, two years, and then we move to the next level. So that has helped me a lot. Um, uh, I have had great teams, in particular my own team in my practice yeah. has just stepped up enormously and, and done all the work basically that I used to do. But also in, in my uh, leadership role, I had the sector heads were such an amazing team of talented individuals working as a team that was fantastic. Mm. And, and they did lots of work. I have had very strong MNBD support in, in uh, Karen Snell and Adam Soames. Yeah. Those were just terrific team members who, who basically did most of the work there. So I think... When you have a team like that, it's all doable because you don't feel you need to do it all alone. It's true that in every company and in law firms, you are always at risk as being in constant crisis mode. <laughs> There's always something There's to fix. There's always something going on. Yeah, <laughs> and so and it, it gets tiring at some yeah. point. Mm. So I must say, I enjoy more the building piece, mm -hmm. right? The building the industry sector yeah. program you know, making people feel good about it and enthusiastic and then let them run with it. And yeah. then I need to have something new. Yeah. Right? That's, okay. that, that's uh, I think, in realistic self-assessment, my strength is more there than to keep it going, going, going. So what now? Yeah, so I, when I decided not to do it another term yeah. as an IMC, I thought I'd take a break. A mental break, at mm -hmm, least. Mm -hmm. It didn't yet feel so much like a break <laughs> uh, because there was uh, a big case coming and so forth. But it's it's still much more relaxing because you can focus and you are not torn in so many different re uh, directions. So my plan for the immediate future is really focus on my client work. And then, like it has always been, if something emerges from that an idea you a concept it. then yeah. i run with it yeah. right and so i i'm pretty sure that that will happen at some point but it doesn't need to happen now and i really enjoy being back to the real work mm -hmm. helping clients and seeing that you can still make a difference mm. 
How long did it take you to make the decision I'm not going to run another term? Uh, that took long. Um, so uh, I think it was until I took it at least six months. So this has... Uh, wow, okay. Because you, you are torn and you feel responsible. Yeah. And I'm, as you know, here in the North, Prussian upbringing, yeah. all about duty yeah. and <laughs> obligation <laughs> and responsibility mm -hmm. to other people. Yeah. And so I martyred my brain and mm. said, can you do that? Mm. And on the other hand, I, you know... I'm not a person who who wants to stay in the same role for a long time because I don't think you may be as gifted as you are. You are not good at it at some point. Yeah, there needs to be fresh thinking, younger people, new ideas, and if you always stand there and that you are perceived as so strong, then people will not dare to do something different yeah. and so i felt it was time to have somebody look at this with a fresh eye and say so far so good but now the next dramatic change needs to occur right <laughs> okay. and so i couldn't do that because yeah. you do you say well i've dreamt it all up and we've organized it and now it's fine yeah somebody else needs to take a fresh look and you know do something different with it okay so you just mentioned that the, the breaking point is not here yet but obviously with this amount of work and the intense schedule what do you do to get a little distance from work and clear yeah. your head yeah i imagine just i'm not sharing too much but <laughs> i think the situation we're in right now is super helpful <laughs> i yeah. would imagine for me personally because it's beautiful here yeah. so um yeah so different things first my family I have three daughters and kids are not impressed with parents as you know mm. and they challenge you and they ground you and put your feet back onto the earth yeah and sometimes below <laughs> um, but they are also a big 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 enjoyment and they are so amazing when I'm with them that that obviously is a totally different thinking feeling yeah. person I read a lot, and the more I'm stressed, the more I read, so because then it's the only way to get my brain stop mm -hmm. thinking. Yeah. yeah, so I, I do that. And I like exercise outdoors, mm. uh, nothing dramatic. So this, uh, this weekend I've been windsurfing. I have been also surfing in Portugal. Cool. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not an expert at anything, but I enjoy it, and yeah. I do it, and physical uh, uh, work is nice, so yeah. I do that or running um, mm -hmm. is, has been over the last years. The only thing that I could squeeze in was running. So I did yeah. that. Yes, those are the main things that I do uh, to distract myself. But really what I enjoy more most about the fact that I don't have the management position is really that you can be with your children on a weekend. Right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. absent any crisis at a client, you have the weekend. Yeah. And that wasn't uninterrupted. That mm. wasn't the case mm. for a long time. Okay. That's nice. Looking back now, obviously there is still more ahead. Is this how you envisioned your path? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't think of it. I'm as you have figured out yeah. by now. Yeah. I'm not the planner. So yeah. the, uh, in these management and leadership courses, you, you always get this, you, you put a piece of paper and you make a plan and mm -hmm. then you mm -hmm. look every six months, what yeah. have I done? What have I accomplished? Yeah. All of that feels really boring mm. to me. And mm. 
I had the luck that it all fell together in the right moment, in the right place. So I have never planned it in this way. I've always done next what looked tempting to do mm -hmm. and, and did that. And so uh, I'm happy with this career. Yeah. But obviously, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it could have been different. You yeah, could have said, true. well, why haven't I not been a journalist? Mm -hmm. right? um, no, but I think it's it's always interesting to see what what comes next mm. and what is the next challenge. But I haven't planned it in this way. So and that's a good thing also, because then you cannot um, you cannot miss something if you don't plan Be it. disappointed yeah. if something yeah. is not going yeah. the way you yeah. planned it, yeah. in brackets. Yeah. 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 I think that's a really healthy approach. Yeah, I think it's about the people. So it's always yeah. this enjoyment comes from the people you work with. Mm. And, and so as long as you have that, you're happy. Mm. But I think in working in an environment where I don't have that is something I cannot imagine doing. We're slowly coming to an end. I'd like to end the conversation um, with some wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> so what would be your three essential tips for aspiring lawyers on how to navigate the world of big law, particularly in the life science space? Yeah, I think the three tips is hard because you would have so many. But I think first, be curious, right? The curious piece embraces all of the client relationships, the general networking, the understanding the business of your client. So it's not hard if you just ask. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you ask the clients, you ask your colleagues, you ask whoever you meet about the things that you're interested in and others that they may have to contribute. This curiosity carries far and it will help you learn constantly and will help you also build relationships because other people like it if you are curious and interested in what they do. So that's the first. The second is be genuine and be yourself. Don't turn into a legalistic, writing, complex things person. Yeah. Try to be yourself and explain things in the way you would explain them to the lady on the street or to your children. If you can do that, then you can be a good litigator, a good deal lawyer, a good whatever, because it's it's making complex things simple and not simple things complex, which some lawyers try to do, yeah. right? So the real good lawyers, the real good scientists, the real good pilots can explain to everybody what they do and they could make you fly a 747 And they could make you design a new uh, variant for an mRNA uh, <laughs> vaccine yeah. because they can explain it in simple terms and because they don't, they are themselves. They yeah. don't need to pretend that they are the biggest scientists in the world. They just can tell you how to do it, mm -hmm. right? And that's, if you do that, if you remember that along the way, don't turn into something, don't copy how other people write, don't hide behind format and text yeah but be there and explain because they they all have the brain yeah they understand mm -hmm. and so 
just say it yeah don't hide yeah. and be yourself so that's the second and what is the third and then don't plan too much <laughs> give luck a chance right seize the opportunity if you see one um and you know i started as a regulatory lawyer so then i did litigation then i did trademark litigation until i finally everything together fit into one story namely the life sciences litigator yeah right and you had all the little bits and pieces that you needed to learn and because i hopped onto the opportunities i had that opportunity uh, chance so don't put yourself into a box too early do all the work that you can get even very different work mm -hmm. from your original department if you have a chance partners asking is there capacity yeah volunteer yeah learn learn be curious and then you build your judgment and that's what you later need because that's what the clients want someone who has judgment and experience and you cannot build that up else i think that are wise words for <laughs> the end so thanks everyone for listening in ina thank you very much for taking the time inviting me into your beautiful home <laughs> thank you julius um for everyone who haven't subscribed yet please subscribe to our channel so you're not missing out on any future episodes for now thank you for listening in and talking the cure thank you bye bye